you, Ava. We appreciate you coming here. Thank you, Angel, for coming also. Angel's on her way to Milwaukee, and Don and I are very familiar with the upper Midwest, so you will learn some new uh, words when you get there, new identifiers, like a bubbler. You know, a bubbler is a drinking fountain. You may not have known that, but... And, and, a, and a brat is a sausage, and there'll be lots of those, so... But it's a great, great city, very multicultural, and a lot of great food in Milwaukee, so... And Marquette has a great reputation, so uh, we're glad. And then Ava, thank you so much for bringing us greetings from Great Praise Church, and uh, we look forward to more interaction with the churches in Macau. So thank you so much. It is good to see you on this Palm Sunday here this morning. I'm going to begin with uh, citing a, a story that Rabbi Zacharias uh, has told, and I'm borrowing from him. Uh, Rabbi Zacharias is a great apologist, a great communicator of the truth of God's word, and puts himself in the line of fire many times uh, for the standing for the cause of Christ. But he tells the story that comes from his homeland, from India, and it's a story about a little boy and a little girl. The little boy had a beautiful collection of marbles, and the little girl had lots of candy. The little boy desired the candy, so he worked out a trade, his marbles for her candy. And the little girl agreed and went home and gathered together her stash of candy for a trade. The little boy went to his room and collected his marbles, all except for a box of the most precious, beautiful ones, which he hid under his pillow. The trade was made, and both children went home. And when night came, the little girl slept soundly. But the little boy tossed and turned. He could not sleep because he kept asking himself over and over again, I wonder if she gave me all of the candy. (laughs) Isn't that just like us? Rabbi Zacharias goes on and says, uh, there's a little bit of doubt in all of us about whether or not God has given us all the candy. Is he really, really good? And uh, especially in times of adversity and difficulty, I appreciated Ava's testimony about becoming a believer and then having some great struggles in her life. I think that probably is much of the common experience that all of us face from time to time, that uh, those doubts crop up, the uncertainty, the adversity. Uh, Is God really good? We cry out in the midst in the darkness of pain. And uh, Larry Crabb, uh, the counselor and author, uh, in his book, The Pressure's Off, uh, he talks about the law of linearity, Uh, He gets kind of complicated with this, but basically we as believers think many times we apply this mathematical uh, approach to Christianity, and it goes something like this, A, my efforts plus God's work equals my expected results. Did you get that? My efforts plus God's work and goodness equals my expected results. You see a problem with that? And that's what Crabbe's point is, is that oftentimes we think that if I'm doing what I believe God wants me to do, that he's going to fulfill his part and bless it, and I will get what I expect, whether it's in child rearing, whether it's in marriage relationships, whether it's in business partnerships, whatever it is, or even health concerns. If I'm doing what I believe I'm supposed to do and God's doing his part, Uh, If I don't get my expected results, then there must be something wrong with the equation. And typically we cry out, God, maybe you're not so good after all. Maybe not. Maybe not. And those doubts can get into our life. You know, the test of the authentic Christian life 
is not what we say we believe when everything is going well. Have you noticed that? When everything's going well, that's not the test of the authentic Christian life. The Christian life is revealed in the crucible of pain. I think even this morning as Dave prayed and as I prayed for the church in Egypt, the ancient Coptic Christian church, which has been around since the time of, uh, of the church fathers in the second and third centuries, you know, bombed today in their Palm Sunday services. And I was thinking, boy, we sit here and we, you know, we don't have to worry about that. And yet these folks, some of them paid with their lives for worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, is uh, are we resting in what God is doing it doesn't seem good when we look at the world situation, and it's difficult to believe in the sovereignty of God. But Psalm 46 exhorts us to be still and know that I am God. And that word be still there means to rest, to relax. I try to remember that little phrase from Psalm 46, when I lay my head on the pillow at night, am I resting in God's sovereignty? Can I relax in him, in his character the ability to rest in him really depends upon solely upon our understanding and our intimacy with God himself. We've been doing a short study as we run up to Easter Sunday on some of the declarative acts of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, John records for us some very clear statements that the Lord Jesus Christ made as to his character, as to his plan, as to who his identity really is. And so we come this morning, I had Dave read the triumphal entry, but if we back up, because the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, is usually the beginning point of what we call Passion Week. If Traditionally, it's called Passion Week from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And uh, there's a lot of events that go on during that time. But up until this time, we ask the question, who is Jesus? And in John, Jesus answers that question for us. And if you take your copy of Scripture and turn to John chapter 10, John chapter 10, we come to this great discourse or teaching that Jesus is doing, and he's using the metaphor of a shepherd and sheep, which was a very familiar metaphor, a very familiar sight in the Middle East in the first century. In fact, in the Old Testament and, and in the Middle East in general in history, the kings and the religious leaders often referred to themselves as shepherds and the people as sheep. So it was a very familiar picture to the people who he's addressing in this discourse as he moves towards the crucifixion, towards Jerusalem. And he identifies himself uh, as a shepherd here in chapter 10, verse, uh, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 18, but he, he stresses the fact that he is a certain type of shepherd, and we are looking at that today. Shepherd was a term applied to the spiritual leaders in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, in fact, if you read the, the prophet Jeremiah, he excoriates the religious leaders of his day for being false shepherds, for not uh, helping the sheep, but destroying and scattering the sheep. And woe upon them, he says. The prophet declared that God would set his own shepherd over his sheep when the promised son of David reigns, Jesus Christ. Of course, he's addressing the Jews, the Israelites, who are surrounding him there on that day in Jerusalem. And he tells them in verse 10, or verse 11, excuse me, of chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. 
We've talked about those I am statements, how it is traceable back clear to Exodus chapter 3 where God tells Moses, uh, tell the people I am that I am. It's a declarative of his fundamental identity. He has eternity past, eternity future, no beginning, no end. And Jesus Christ is claiming uh, identity and equality with God the Father, which rings like brass on an observant Jew's ears and to many people today, actually. And he tells us the identity of the shepherd. First of all, the shepherd is the good one. Look again at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. He uses that adjective there. And I was thinking about good shepherds. Now, most of us, I know some of us have experience with sheep. I don't. Uh, But uh, I know that uh, some of you have had experience with sheep. And my understanding is that sheep are dumb and dirty, right? And uh, they don't follow. They don't do what they're supposed to do. And uh, it's a good metaphor for us as people. And then the shepherd, he says here he is the good shepherd. I remember as a, as a youngster, my family would camp in the Colorado Rockies every summer, and we would camp more than once up by Maroon Bells, which is near Aspen, and uh, my dad and I would take long hikes into the high country, and we came around a bend in the trail, and out before us in the valley was a herd of sheep in the high country. I mean, we're talking 12,000 feet or 10,000 feet in elevation. There were all these sheep, and then we saw the wagon, and there was a sheep herder there, with his dogs, and we got to talking to him, and he was a Basque sheep herder. And he had very limited English, but he would spend the summer season in the high country. But he would care for his sheep, and there were predators around. And uh, he had to protect them and care for them and make sure they had enough to eat, enough to drink, and protection and peace for them to flourish. So Jesus stresses the adjective, the term good. In the Bible, there are three different Greek terminologies that are interpreted into our English word good. There are three word groups uh, that are translated as good. The first one is agathos, which means morally upright. It means like a good person. In John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathanael said to him, talking to Philip, can any good thing, in other words, any good person come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. He's introducing Nathaniel to Jesus Christ. It's not that word that's used here. The second word usage is krestos, which means usefulness of material things like I have a good hammer or I have a good car. Luke 5.39 and says in, the, in this parable, in this story, says, No one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. And that's the word used there as krestos. The word that's used here is kalos. Kalos, which means beautiful. It means excellent. It means absolute perfection. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is after everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. That's the level of good we're talking about. It is not a relative goodness of a person. It is not a good use of a material thing, but it is absolute perfection, what Jesus is referring to here. It's intrinsically good. It's beautiful, fair, that which is ideal. To call him good is the same as calling him God. Remember the rich young ruler who came running following up Jesus, and he was as Jesus was going down the road in Mark chapter 10, And uh, he said, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? 
He thought that he could do good works to inherit eternal life. And Jesus answers him and says, why do you call me good? No one is good but the one that is God. Jesus there says, I am equal with God the Father, and you can't earn eternal life. The descriptive term good. He is only one in his class, one of a kind. Look again at chapter 10. This, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Dave read for us Psalm 23. Sadly, that psalm is usually read at uh, graveside services, memorials, when reality is, is it should be read quite often, and many of you have memorized it. Uh, But in Psalm 23, he talks about his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is an expression of his goodness. John Krakauer, maybe you read his book, uh, Into Thin Air. Uh, It relates uh, the hazards that plagued the climbers of Mount Everest, that expedition during the spring of 1996. Uh, That year, the attempt to reach the summit of Mount Everest Uh, resulted in a great loss of life for the climbers. One of those who died was named Andy Harris. Andy Harris was one of the expedition leaders, and Harris had stayed on the peak past the deadline for him to descend safely. He became in dire need of oxygen as he was descending. He radioed his predicament to the base camp, telling them of his need and that he had come upon a cache of oxygen canisters left by all climbers, and he said, they're all empty. Those who had passed by the canisters on their own return from the summit knew that they were not empty, but they were full of life-giving oxygen. They pleaded with Andy Harris on the radio to make use of them, but it was to no avail. Already starved for oxygen, Harrison, or Harris continued to argue that the canisters were empty. The problem was that the lack of what he needed so dis- disoriented his mind that he thought he, he was, even though he was surrounded by the restoring supply, he continued to complain of its absence. The very thing that he held in his hand was absent in his brain and ravaged his capacity to recognize what he was clutching in his very grasp, and he paid for it with his life. And, you know, the reality is is that many people are searching for the life-giving oxygen of eternal life in all corners of the earth, in all corners of philosophy, in all places, and yet it is within their grasp. It is a free gift of God in Jesus Christ. This absolutely good shepherd has four characteristics he describes in this passage. Jesus self-declares, I am the good shepherd, and then goes on to describe four characteristics. First of all, this shepherd dies for us. When you think of sheep and shepherds, especially in that time in the Middle East, the shepherds wouldn't die. If they died, the sheep were at great, great uh, danger. But the sheep would die for the shepherd, basically, because they were a product, and they would be given as a product. And yet here, this shepherd dies for us. Look at verse 11, the second part of verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf uh, snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned with the sheep. Jesus is pointedly referring to the religious leadership of Israel at that time, the Pharisees. They are the hired hands that are not fulfilling their responsibility. Just like in the Old Testament, when Jeremiah excoriates the priests of his day, those who would not... Uh, lay down their lives for the sheep. 
but Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life, the ultimate sacrifice that a shepherd would make. We know that many in the Old Testament were shepherds, Abraham, David, to think of a couple, and think of David, he fought a bear and a lion to protect his sheep. Uh, One man has written that it's useless for the sheep to pass resolutions in favor of vegetarianism while the wolf remains of a different opinion. And uh, the reality is, is that, yeah, we can pass all the resolutions that we want, but the wolf is always at the door. Satan is seeking to destroy the believers. So the shepherd dies for us. Secondly, the other characteristic is the shepherd knows us in verses 14 and 15. And there's two vital areas of knowledge. Let me read verse 14 and 15. Again, he repeats, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, he repeats his first characteristic of dying for us. But he knows us. He calls us by name. When I was in the seventh grade, I had grand illusions that I would be a football star. My older sister uh, dated a football player in high school, and I was just enamored with the game of football, and so I went out for football. Our coach was Coach Wanzer. He was, I think, a former Marine drill instructor, and... uh, That whole year of seventh grade, he never knew my name. It was, what's it, or hey you, or what's your name, and the whole year uh, in my seventh grade of school. And uh, we just called him coach, and, uh, you know, I don't know that he even had a first name. He was maybe too mean to have a first name, but uh, every afternoon at practice, a bunch of us little skinny seventh graders would go out and uh, trembling and uh, scared of him. And uh, in those Colorado afternoons, he would uh, not know our names. He would just say, hey, you, come over here. And all of us would run over. Or, hey, you, skinny, get over here. Or, hey, you, dummy, get over here. And all of us would run over. And uh, that's the kind of coach he was And a whole year. In fact, I even had a class from him, and I don't think he knew my name then. And this was back in the days where you'd get a report card, and there were comments in the side. I'm pretty sure he wrote a comment and said, you need to give this boy a name, uh, you know, to my parents. But we were basically 98 pounds of morsels for uh, cannon fodder for the varsity players. But you know what? Jesus Christ knows your name. He knows you intimately better than anything in the whole world. There's no mistaking it. Imagine if President Trump would show up and know each one of our names. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? You know, that would really be amazing, especially with the millions of people in the USA. I've been told that one person on average can remember about 150 names and then they start to lose it. Some do quite a lot uh, better than that. Uh, But the good shepherd knows our name, not just a name and a face, but who you really are. Uh, He knows all about the weight that you're carrying in your life. He knows all about uh, the issues you face, the adversities you face, the joys you feel the relationships, the things that work in your life. He knows your name. That's the first vital area. Secondly, he knows your nature. It tells us in chapter 10, verse 3, that he goes before us. Ten, chapter 10, verse 4, verse 27, says the sheep follow him. And that's a shepherd, you know. It's not the good cowboy, it's the good shepherd. Good cowboys drive their cattle, but a good shepherd leads the sheep, and it says they follow him. And that's uh, the challenge we all have. 
because we like sheep have gone astray. How many are truly concerned that no matter what occurs, our lives are being followed by goodness and mercy, as Psalm 23 states. There are times when our confidence in Christ is tested and that we need to remember and reflect upon, is he really the good shepherd? He dies for us. He knows us. The third characteristic is the shepherd will bring others into his flock and uh, Those of us sitting here today, I don't know if anybody has a Jewish heritage, but the rest of us are all Gentiles, and that's who he's referring to in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Praise God. Believers are his possession. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me, will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Great statement of security for the believer in Jesus Christ, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. Another great clear declaration of the believer's security. And, of course, Peter, the apostle Peter, writes in his first letter, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have placed your trust in him, your faith in Christ for eternal well-being, you are rightly related to him, and he will not Cast you out. This brings us to the fourth characteristic. He dies for us. He knows us. He's expanding his flock. In fact, just let me go back to that for a minute. He brings others. And that's the the wonder of of, of Ava and Angel coming to visit with us and those of us who have been to Macau. It really demonstrates that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, as was pointed out by Paul. And it is a great thing, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the fourth characteristic is that the shepherd has authority over death. Look again at verse 17 through 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my father. Jesus Christ has authority over the ultimate enemy, and that is death. And that he took your place and my place so that we would have a future and a hope that when this physical body passes away or translates into heaven with Jesus Christ, uh, he has gained the victory over sin and death. We talked about that last last week about created life and uncreated life. We have created life. Life has been given to us by God for a certain time. Physical life, spiritual and emotional life. And uncreated life is God's alone. And he has chosen through Jesus Christ to share with us eternal life, everlasting life, because of what Christ has done for us. The good shepherd pours out his soul for the sheep. The good shepherd gives more than natural life. He gives his whole self, his completeness, that uncreated life to us. The good shepherd lays down his life for the benefit of his sheep. Four times in this short number of verses, he declares that, He lays, voluntarily gives his life for the sheep. 
one of the big struggles I had as a new believer when I was 28 years old was uh, the very issue of uh, physical death. I was concerned for it. I thought it was something that was just, you know, it was a random act kind of thing until it was pointed out to me in, in uh, Revelation chapter 1 that uh, Jesus Christ, let me just read the passage for you, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, the apostle John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, this is Jesus speaking, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was declared dead, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. The one who holds the keys to death is the one who is perfect, holy, righteous, and makes no mistakes. When I learned that, I began to rest in him, that I don't need to worry about it. Like I've said many, many times before, I'll die on time, not too early, not too late, because God, the Lord Jesus Christ, holds the keys to death. Christ demonstrated at Calvary on the cross that he is heading to, that we recognize on Easter Sunday in the resurrection that He is benevolently caring in his grace, unmerited favor for his people. He himself absorbed the penalty for our perverseness, stating clearly that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah wrote. The good shepherd, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd here in John 10. Interestingly, Jesus is also identified as the great shepherd, in Hebrews 13, 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. And then he's referred to in 1 Peter as the chief shepherd. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a striking order to be observed in those three occurrences of identity of the shepherd. First of all, these shepherd titles, here in John 10, the reference is plainly to the cross. He refers to giving up his life. He is the good shepherd in death, laying down his life for the sheep. The passage in Hebrews 13 is a reference to his empty tomb, so that he is the great shepherd in the resurrection. Well, in 1 Peter, the reference is to the chief shepherd about his glorious return, that Jesus Christ has promised to return He is the great God. Well, through the miracle of technology, I'm going to let S.M. Lockridge close for us. S.M. Lockridge was a pastor in San Diego. He pastored there from 1953 to 1993. And S.M. Lockridge, I think, has some good words for us today. The Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son.
the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. I wonder if you know him. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning.